listening to First Church Charlotte. Greetings to everyone wherever you are throughout the metro area. We are having remote church, church at a distance. And I just want to say to all of you who are spread throughout the the community, let me move this out of the way. Uh, it It feels amazing in this house. Now there's only about 20 of us here. But I want you to know that it, I wish so much you could be here. It feels so good uh, to be with brothers and sisters of faith, brothers and sisters who are facing the same uncertainty you're facing, who are uh, dealing with the same anxiety that you're dealing with. And they're in this house and they're pouring themselves out uh, to their creator. And that's what we're all doing here today. Uh, We've been operating here with a, we call it a no-touch policy where nobody touches anybody else. Um, we don't even bump elbows. Uh, so we have this way of kind of letting people know at a distance that we love them and, and you're, you're my people. <laughs> and so some people were doing this, you know, like I love you. That's sign language for I love you. And then I was doing this. It's like psychological hugs. Like I see you at a distance. I'm like. And so then I had this idea that we could be even cooler. And what we do is we put the love you with the hug and now we're all. So to all you people spread out wherever you are in the city, we love you, we miss you. This shall pass. Like the old story about the elderly theologian and they asked him what his favorite scripture in the Bible was. And he said, well, it wasn't really a scripture, it was a saying. They said, well, what is it? And he said, this also shall pass or it came to pass. As if to say, whatever you're facing, it will pass. And this situation will pass, and we will be stronger for it. Trouble in the near term, yes. Uh, Anxiety in the near term, but we will come through. Um, I will have a few more comments about our church's kind of uh, response in this area at the end of the service today. For right now, I want to get right into the Word of the Lord. I've decided to go ahead and finish up the series we were doing called Love and Holiness, and I... If we put it off too long, it won't be, uh, most people won't remember. Um, it's some, I, sometimes I forget what I preach, so don't feel bad. Uh, but I, I want to kind of wrap that up. We've been using as our theme, theme scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, verse number 23. And we've been reading it in the, the message translation. So I'll read, may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole make you holy and whole, put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master, Jesus Christ. So let's get into this today. It's um, more of a spiritual conversation than anything else. And so I want to have you consider some things. It's my goal today to show you perhaps a, a vision of the Lord that is not often considered in our in our, our daily devotional reflection. So let's let's walk this road together. As a quick review, uh, we learn about the nature of God and we learn about the nature of humanity through thinking about love. Love is that human emotion that God chose to define Himself. Real quick, if you missed any of that series, I'll give you the short. Reader's Digest condensed version. It goes like this. Um, Three 
self-definitions of God. Three statements where he gives insight into his essence and into his nature. And he says this, he is spirit. You'll think of the gospel of John, God is a spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, You'll also uh, find in the scripture the definition of God as light, a God who explains his being, the essence, the nature of his existence as light. And then finally, that statement of human emotion that we better than anything else can identify with, and that is simply a God is love. Now, uh, if, I, if, I, if I understand correctly, uh, God will identify with this manner, in this manner, love more than almost anything else, and that's particularly because of the writings of the last of the living apostles. Now, that was the apostle John, who had been, they tried to kill him. Tradition says that Uh, In Rome, he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil before a crowd, a whole host of people watching in in a a spectacle-type context, and he did not die, and it so moved the crowd. When they pulled him out, he seemed to be unharmed, uh, that many, if not most of the people watching, uh, at least in that moment, begin to uh, have faith in this man, Jesus Christ. That is not scripture, that is tradition. So let's, let's let it be tradition, not raise it to the level of scripture. But John, the apostle John, as the last living apostle, has a chance to shape the movement. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, if, if John, because he's the last living apostle, and he was really the closest to the Lord, if he wants to emphasize something that he thinks is being misunderstood by any of the various New Testament churches. Like, for example, if he knows of a group and they are misunderstanding James when he says, show me your works, um, and he thinks people are misunderstanding that, he has a chance to emphasize, come down on one side or the other of that argument. Uh, If he wants to emphasize the more more common statements of Paul where um, it's not by works that you can be saved, but through grace and grace alone, he can... He can make those statements. In other words, if what he has in his heart, if what the Apostle John has in his heart is a desire to enter any of the theological, shall we say, schools of emphasis at best or schools of disagreement at worst, um, he has this chance to do that. He is living. He's no longer on Patmos. He's been brought back. um, And he writes the last three epistles of John. And if you take the time to read these, uh, you'll notice themes in them. One of the largest themes is that uh, God is love and that we can't say that we know God if we have a problem loving people. Uh, The Apostle John will establish this and he will, like, like in the manner of preachers everywhere, he will repeat himself and he will repeat himself. And also warnings against a false doctrine. Uh, whether it's Gnosticism or the Judaizers who want to turn uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ back into the keeping of law. Uh, You'll see these things in his writing. Let's, rather than getting too deep in all of those things, let's think about the consequences here of a God who identifies his being as love. Now, 
I know I don't want to lose anyone by, in, by saying it that way, but I, I want you to understand what I'm saying. Uh, the Lord is not saying, I will show you how to love. He's saying, I am, I am love. He's not saying, uh, follow me and I'll make you um, uh, kinder. He will do that, but that's not what he's saying. He's not using love as something he leads you to or something that he has perfected. He's using love as self-identity, self-declaration. And so you see, see in the writings particularly of John this statement. Now, if we were to take the time to ask ourselves, how then do we best learn of God in terms of love since love is the only human emotion that God is using as self-declaration, self-identity, we would be able to learn from love and all of its depths and all of its differences. And so, as you know, we went through the four famous loves that the great Christian philosopher and apologists, apologist C.S. Lewis identified in his book, The Four Loves. Uh, the love of affection, this is family, kinship, uh, ph- that's called storage in the Greek. Uh, phileo, this is friendship. Uh, agape, this is unequal, um, un unmerited. This is divine love. And then finally, eros, which is romantic love. All of these give us an insight into the nature of God. And here's what's amazing. And this is what I want you to take away from this. The Bible will teach you from all four loves something about the nature of God. As a family, uh, the Lord adopts you. We sang about that here today. Uh, Nobody heard me, but I was singing very loud on the front row, but they don't let me have a microphone during that time. Very, very cruel, I say. Um, We saying about that. Uh, God has adopted you. He's given you his name. There are benefits to being a part of a family. You are no longer a spiritual orphan. We learn through uh, that, that family love. Storage is the Greek word. And also friendship. This is, this is shared interest and association. At least that is how it starts. But we know biblically that it can become more than that. Friendship can truly be a covenant as shown to us in the, the, the beautiful story of King David and his friend, Prince Jonathan. And also, you can see the unequal love that we think of as agape love. This is God as parent, as father. Um, agape love is selfless. There is no child who would make it through their early years without a parent who was willing to care for them in every regard of their life. Feed them, bathe them, clothe them, protect them. It is an unequal love. That child may love his or her parent, but it's not the kind of love of choice. It's the love of need, and the Bible teaches us with this. We did, we did a lesson on this, this unequal agape love that is truly uh, the sign of God where when we were sinners, when we were in our sin, when we were lost and undone, even then Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, uh, the apostle will say. And finally, what we need to learn from is something that is least celebrated among us church people, and that is the lessons of romantic love in our relationship with God. Now, why do we not celebrate this as much? Well, you, you probably know why. It can at times feel a little bit awkward. Uh, it can feel a little bit ooey gooey. Um, it can feel like, oh my goodness, you know, uh, stop it already. And there can be this sense of... Uh, when you see someone else caught up in the current of this, this 
eros, this romantic love, it can make you roll your eyes like, oh, really? Just stop it already because it's almost like they are so absorbed with each other that it is, it is obscene for you to watch. It is, maybe that's not the right word, it is embarrassing for you to watch. It's almost like they are in some manner, uh, they, they don't know uh, that they, they have a sprig of hair sticking straight up and you're embarrassed for them. Um, and so we don't celebrate this near as much. Now you'll see images of it in some of our songs and you'll hear tones and phrases of it in some of our, our worship. Um, but I want you to see I want you to see the Bible is unafraid to show romantic love as a lesson about God. In fact, it is such an important lesson that romantic love is the language used to express how we are going to be when we are caught up to spend eternity with the Lord. It is not simply family then. It is bride and bridegroom. It is my beloved. It is the besotted love language of the Song of Solomon, where you see the maiden looking, where is he? I go ahead and get embarrassed. Are you ready for this? Where is he? My love, my dove, my undefiled. Where is you see this? That yet, yeah, wherever you are, you're smiling and you are like, <laughs> stop it already. No, I will not stop it already. And don't you change this channel. <laughs> and so... Let's talk about what we learn from romantic love. And I want to ask you this question in the manner of a conversation. Uh, how would God know if you loved him? How would he really know if you loved him? Um, how would you know? How would he know? Um, you look at what someone does. You look at how they present themselves to you. You look at the manner in which they emotionally prostrate themselves, so to speak, emotionally make themselves vulnerable, and you realize what they are, what they are offering to you. So let me tell you an Old Testament story here, and we're going to try to deal with this issue of how would God know if we loved him. I'm reading from Job chapter number one, and I will read from the New Living Translation. Um, this will help us hear this story with new ears. One day, this is verse six, one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser, uh, Satan, I, I know some people out there think they're the accuser, um, but that's really not your job. You can let the devil do that job. <laughs> the accuser, Satan, uh, answered the Lord, or excuse me, the accuser, Satan, came with them. Verse 7, where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, okay, yeah, I get it. But Job has good reason to fear the Lord. How does God know if you love him? Job has good reason to fear the Lord. You have always put a wall of protection around him. Duh. You put this wall of protection around him, around his home, around his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. 
Don't you wish someone would say that about you? That would be awesome. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take everything he has. And he will surely curse you to his face. Hmm. All right, the Lord says, you may test him. Do whatever you want to him with everything he possesses. Don't harm him physically. The Lord, so uh, Satan left the Lord's presence. Now, how does God know if we love him? If he is the parent who always spoils the child. Of course, the child loves the, 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 the parent who always spoils, spoils him or her because they want the latest uh, game. Uh, they want the latest uh, doll. <laughs> they want the latest of whatever. As they get older, they want the latest handbag. Uh, they want the latest car that fits their group. Um, how, does, how, how does God know that we love him? Uh, I, want to, I want to have you consider something here today. Um, there is a true element about our relationship with God, and that is we only see him through faith. The Bible says no man hath seen God at any time. Uh, and so for us to uh, see him, it is not an action of the senses. It's not this repeatable phenomenon that we can reference in the manner of science. It is very much a statement of faith. And so that is the only way we can, we can really see the Lord because no man hath seen him at any time. And uh, John, uh, writing his book of Revelation, will, will reference this. In chapter 10 and verse number 7, he says this, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he, this angel, shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished. Now don't, don't rush past that. When that trump sounds, what's going to happen? The mystery of God will be finished. Um, why, why isn't there mercy for angels? Because they don't see God through faith. They see him as he is. And for them not to believe is not an act of doubt. It's an act of rebellion. We're having a spiritual conversation here. For an angel not to believe is not an act of doubt. That's you and I, because we see him through faith. For them, it's an act of rebellion. What happens to angels? Well, they're cast down. Lucifer fell like lightning, yes? And so, this host of rebellious beings formed what we think of as forces of evil in the earth. And so... For the rest of us, we only see God through faith. There was no mercy for the angels for fail, who fell. Why? Theirs was not an act of doubt. It was an act of rebellion. There was no Calvary for the angels. Why? It was not an act of doubt. It was an act of rebellion. But for us, Christ loved us in our fallen nature and paid our debt at Calvary and died for us that we might be made whole in him. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful. There was no chance for me if Christ did not pay it all for me and wash my sins away. And that's true for all of us. It was the ultimate act of love. But why did that not apply to the angels? Because for them, uh, to turn away from God is not an act of doubt. It is an act of rebellion. A day will come when the mystery of the Lord, we read it here, Revelation chapter number 10, the mystery of the Lord will come to an end. What does that mean? We're going to see him as he is. 
The Bible says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What am I, what, what, what is all going on here? A day's going to come when we're not going to have to see him through faith. We're going to have to just open our eyes and there he is. And at that moment, there will be no more cynics. There will be no more doubters. There will be no more pert people. There will literally be the evidence of what you can see. But on that day, there will be no more need for faith. But there also will be no more opportunity for mercy. We will be in the same category of the angels. Why? The mystery of the Lord has come to an end. And we see him as he is. Now think about that. Now I've kind of set this over here as an idea. Uh, And I want you to consider now back to this story of Job. Job, if he's not careful, can serve the Lord for the benefits of what God can do for him. If Job's not careful, he has an idea of God as Santa Claus on high. And I've made my Christmas list and I've been good. (laughs) Therefore, you owe me. And um, now would you kind of dissolve from the giant fog bank in the sky and do something for me in the here and now? Um, I think there's very few Christians who will admit they live that way. But there's lots of Christians who I fear, including myself at times, live that way. Where we reevaluate our faith in the context of what we're going through. And when times are hard, we get discouraged and we start thinking, you know, maybe I'll just do something else with my life. When we don't get the career we, we really, really wanted, we, we kind of get a little bit of bitterness toward God. When you don't end up with the relationship you wanted, um, you kind of get a little bitterness at God. And when things don't work out, you kind of get a little bitterness at God. And this relationship is always up for negotiation. Uh, if you're good to me, then I'll be good to you. If you give me what I want, then I'll give you what you want. How? How would God know if you loved him? Job, God's been so good to you. All you have to do is throw a business idea up in the air and it comes down pure sunshine. Everything you touch is blessed. Everything you're involved with is blessed. You're a success at every single thing you do. You're a success as a father. You're a success as a husband. You are a success as a, a, a business person. You are a success in every arena. Spiritually, you are perfect and upright. It's almost as though you are an ideal, a teaching ideal deal because you're just amazing and the devil's like "Mm, I'm not buying that this is a quid pro quo this is a if you're good to me I'm good to you this is a do for me I'll do for you take away the quid pro quo Lord and let's see if he really loves you let's see if he loves you and the Lord says okay I want to point out to you that the book of Job is the oldest writing we have of the sacred books of the Bible I'm talking about the age of the copies uh, the textual copies Job is the oldest it's almost as though our uh, fellow men and women of faith who were generations before us the first thing they felt good enough to write down was this issue of good and evil what is a good man or woman's response to the problem of good and evil will we blame God for the trouble and will we turn our back on God for the trouble it's almost as though our generations that have gone before us said that's the first thing we ought to write down and that book of Job dealing with the problem of evil becomes a testimony that reaches through all the generations and hits us right here in this trouble of 2020 that we're all living to it hits us right between the eyes and smotes our heart are we believers when God has performing what we request or is there something more 
for in us a desire for relationship, not an unequal relationship where I'm helpless, you do everything for me. That's shown to us in agape love. That's shown to us in the parent who takes care of the helpless child. Is, is God just a traveling companion? He can be that to you. He can be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But is that all he is? Is there something in your heart that looks heavenward and says, I want to be more than a traveling companion, oh God. I want to be more than just a dutiful son or daughter who wants the right of your riches and wants access to my inheritance and once what I can have it's like the prodigal son who goes to his father and says give me in my inheritance and in that day and age that was a social statement of saying I wish you were dead and I was you do you see this is what we do when we turn our back on God we try to take his role and so the prodigal goes and you know what he does with what he has and then he comes back and mercy 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 again is applied to him how would God know if we loved him if we were just traveling companions as long as it suits our interests to go along then sure uh, there is some lessons to learn from that love uh, as, as long as he is our supplier and we know he is our supplier and he's our father who uh, in his agape selfless love takes care of us when we're weak and we're lowly and he puts us back together again and he changes our spiritual diapers yes I said it it's unequal love but is there something that in your heart that desires to behold the beauty of the Lord I'm not just in this for what I get out of it I'm so in love with what you have represented to me through the pages of this sacred scripture I'm so in love with the idea of your grace and your goodness I'm so in love I want to behold your beauty I choose you I'm not stuck with you I choose you. This is what Job does. He chooses God. He loses everything he has. They think he's going to turn his back on God. No, he doesn't. Then the, the, uh, Satan's allowed to touch his body and he's filled with misery, head to toe boils. If you've had a boil, you immediately understand this. Misery, top of his head, the soles of his feet, absolute misery. He's broken. He has nothing. Even his wife says, look, this faith thing you have isn't working out for you very well. Even his, his wife who has stood with him and, and, and bore his children and she's even like look you need to try to find another God there's a better deal out there and Job says though he slay me I will serve him this is not if you're good to me I'm good to you this is I don't understand but I choose you I wish things were different but I choose you this is what God teaches us through these images of something we feel like at least at some level we understand and that is the human experience of love. So um, I, want to, I want to tell you at least one story here. Um, I, some of you will have heard this before. I don't mean to bore you with it, but it's, it's my testimony. Um, when I was a young evangelist, I was 22 years old. I was a full-time evangelist. Um, I, if I, I look back, 
back and I'm amazed. Uh, I don't know exactly how that happened, but somehow uh, my parents let me go do that. And, um, and my, uh, I was single. My, uh, my wife was finishing college and uh, we were engaged. And so I guess that's single with an asterisk. <laughs> and um, she, there'd been a hurricane and there'd a lot of strange tropical diseases uh, up in where we were going to college at. And she actually contracted a virus of some type that uh, gave her um, encephalitis, swelling of the brain, which induced a stroke in her. And I was in revival in Los Angeles. I got a call that she was in ICU. She was paralyzed. Uh, they didn't know what was going to happen. You can imagine, I was 22 years old, uh, young preacher, didn't know much about anything. Um, I flew back as soon as I could, and uh, which was <laughs> immediately. And I walked in that, that hospital uh, room in Lake Charles and um, she was in ICU, so I couldn't go back. I had to walk into the waiting room, and uh, as soon as they, as soon as there was, uh, it worked out, they took me back, and I saw this girl that I had fallen in love with. This girl that I had, I thought I knew, I had, uh, uh, and it wasn't the same girl. She was, um, her face was drawn up. Uh, she was paralyzed on one side of her body. Um, just, I can't describe to you the shock of it. Um, I didn't know what to do. I just kept going in and out when they'd let me go in. I'd go back out and sit. Uh, for the first three or four days, um, I don't remember sleeping at all. I, I don't. I, I may have dozed. I, I have no, I, I don't remember much. Um, but I know that on the, it was either the third or the fourth night, I don't know, but I kept telling myself, um, I, I, I probably should sleep. Um, but my solution to this was to try to understand the problem, and so I started studying. This was before internet where you could pull everything up uh, in, um, you know, in the manner we do now, but um, I just started asking questions, and finally the nurses, um, they had mercy on me, and they took me back to the doctor's reference library in the intensive care unit, and uh, so the doctors would come in and out of there, and it was a small, and they had all kind of documentation and books everywhere, and I sat in that room, and um, they let me look, look at their stuff. How cool is that? And I would sit there, and I would read, and I would read, and I would read, and uh, maybe this, and maybe that, and at this age, maybe that, and five-year survivability, and recovery expectation, and it just went on and on and on. There came a point when I realized that there was nothing I could do, there was nothing I could learn, and um, I, I, remember, I remember going out and, and going into the waiting room where we were all camped out, and I found a chair where they couldn't see me, because I didn't want them to see me break down, and I knew I was about to lose it. And so I went in the corner and I kind of slumped over and I just, I just wept like I was as sad as uh, any old hound dog that's ever been out there. I was so sad. I wept and I wept and I wept. And um, I had to face the fact that she may not recover. That's what they were saying. And that I, I you know, and I, what, 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 what next? And um, that was really my first experience with tragedy for me. And... Um, I'll be honest with you, uh, I, I feel like in some ways I failed that test. Um, I failed that test not because I was a bad kid or not because I was a sinner. I, I mean, I was a sinner, but um, that wasn't the problem. I mean, it was the problem, but you get the idea. I think I failed the test because in my fear, I let myself think that if she passed away, I didn't know if I could continue in ministry. 
And I felt like that was the only thing in my life that was a calling. Everything else was opportunity, which is different than calling. You have opportunities in your life and you have callings in your life. You shouldn't get those things confused. Your future sense of worth and your moral value depends on your ability to determine determine what is a calling and what is just an opportunity. And if you're in the business of trading callings for opportunities, you in the short term will feel like you've done the right thing. But in the long term, you'll look back and like, what was I thinking? Not preaching about that. I felt like I felt that, but I failed that test. Um, I, those, that, time was, that time was so difficult. There were, it wasn't, I'll tell you a funny story from that time. I never told this story to the church before, but since we're all stuck in houses and you need some way to laugh anyway, I'm going to tell you a story that's horrible and hilarious. Okay, so I'm going back and sitting with my wife and she's sitting back here and she's like, pitiful in this bed I mean she's just pitiful she's paralyzed her face is all drawn up I won't imitate her um and um and so there's nothing to read no internet back then no ipads no iphones I'm just sitting there and um uh, so I pick up the bible and I I just open the bible and I start reading the bible because that's what spiritual people moi that's what you do when people are sick you start reading the bible and Charlotte's laying in the bed, and there was this silly song that was borderline sin that had been going around Bible school uh, that we would sing because as college kids, we thought it was so funny to almost sin, but not quite. And so um, she's laying there, and she said, she said, hey, I got something to sing. And um, the nurse is there. She waves the nurse over. She waves the doctor over, and she starts singing, true story, all across the internet land, true story. I feel like hell. I feel like hell. I feel like helping someone today. (laughs) That was the verse the Bible school wrote. This was the verse the girls' dorm wrote. I need a man. I want a man. I'll have a mansion in heaven someday. (laughs) That's funny. I don't care what y'all say. (laughs) Later on in life, I would have other disasters, things that broke my heart. And I, I have to make a full confession to you, and that is this. In many of those, I was so overwhelmed with them, uh, I, I, every single time I felt a check in my, myself, like I just don't know if I can continue telling other people about God if I'm hurt with this. And that was a failure every single time. Every single time was a failure for me. Um, I never quit. I never like went crazy and you know, I never did any of that, but that check was in my spirit until finally, um, really the situation that happened a few years back with my daughter where we were essentially told that she had uh, osteosarcoma and large mass growing off of her jawbone. And um, some of you were with us and went through this with us. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget standing in my kitchen and I, uh, I was the only one in the kitchen and I was just standing, leaning against the counter just standing there. I don't know why I was there. When you're going, when you're kind of like in shock, you do a lot of things. You like realize, why am I sitting on the floor in the hallway? This makes no sense. But I'm just standing there and I'm just leaning on the kid and I'm crying. And it's, it's, you, you, you can imagine you've gone through things like this yourself. I'm standing there and I'm crying. And all of a sudden it realized, I realized this thing that um, every single time I had tried to reimagine my life where I wasn't in ministry, where I wasn't making uh, the kingdom of God the center of my, of my journey, the center of my, my, my purpose. And I had done that every single time. What would it look like if, if I lost a Charla? What would it look like if I lost a Durant? What would it look like if I, if I, you know, 
had some difficulties with the, the cancer situation. I went through, what would it look like? And every time there was just a little bit of a check, like maybe, maybe you don't have it in you to go tell other people of a God who will heal when you haven't gotten your healing. And maybe you don't have it in you to go tell other people of a God who will, who will strengthen when you're living with weakness. Maybe you don't have it into, into. So I decided to do something right there, which for me was a big deal. It may not resonate with you because you have your own trials and troubles, but I got down on my knees in the kitchen and I said simply to God, I'll never forget, I have my hands on the, on the, the edge of the sink and I put my forehead against the sink and I'm just, I'm just kneeling there and I said, God, if you take my little girl, I'm still your man. If she passes, I'm still your man. And I won't allow myself to think about giving up. I won't allow myself to reimagine another life. Come what may, I'm still your man. Well, we had a positive result to that circumstance with, with our daughter. I'm so thankful for that. But I want to say this. Imagine God trying to figure out who just wants a blessing and who wants a love story with him. The first thing you have to do is ask yourself, if I didn't have all this stuff, could I still desire the beauty of the Lord? If I, if, I, if I was not able to claim this or declare that or as some people do, command God this, okay, whatever. If none of that was available, could you still love him? Could you love what he represented? Could you see the beauty of a God who would come to a broken world and rather than abandoning that world, even though it was an act of rebellion that broke it, and you, say, and you see him say, I'm going to try to fix a broken world. I'm going to give myself to fix a broken world. Could you love? Could you seek to know? Could you seek to stand with him? Could you give him your heart? Whatever you're facing in your life, whatever troubles you're looking at, we've, we've got plenty of troubles right now. Some of you, and I'm, I'm almost done, musicians, you can come. Some of you, you, you may have already lost your job. You may have already lost your job. You may be sitting with a stack of bills and thinking to yourself, there's no way I get through this without destroying my credit, without watching my children suffer. Some of, you, some of you may be sick and have, are waiting to find out if you've got some crazy virus, that's, this COVID-19 virus that's going around. Whatever your circumstance, I want to I point out something to you, and I want to do it gently because this is a hard thing, and the truth, I'm, I'm supposed to be a preacher, and I wasn't ready for it for a long time. I wasn't. That's, that's me being honest. In your trouble, you have an opportunity to turn your eyes heavenward and say, I choose you, not for the fishes and the loaves, not because you gave me a winning lottery ticket, not because you worked everything out. I choose you because of who you are. I see the beauty of the Lord. I choose you. There's this image in the Song of Solomon, and there's so much in the Song of Solomon. I could have done a whole series on this idea of love and spiritual wholeness and just use the Song of Solomon. But there's this, there's this image in the Song of Solomon I want, I want all of you to see because it is romantic love in the context of our heart 
to God. And that is this. Remember that in the Song of Solomon, um, they didn't have dating culture. There's no dating culture. There's no, if I like you, we'll go out and have a coffee. And then if you like me, we'll go to McDonald's. And then if we like each other, we'll splurge and go to some restaurant. And then it's not dating culture. In this time, marriages are arranged. And I want you to see that in a time of arranged marriages, the woman doesn't have a choice of what she's going to give up. Let's be real. But she has a choice of whether or not she's going to try to fall in love. And in the story of the Song of Solomon, what you have is the the bridegroom that's represented, the, the shepherd who is also a king. What you see with him is he is waiting until she says she loves him. They're not dating. One of the problems of modern religion is we, we date God. We see if we like him. We see if we have something in common. We go to church. We visit here. We go there. You get the idea? We date God. In the Song of Solomon, they're committed. The issue isn't whether or not they're going to have, you know, two flesh become one. The issue isn't whether or not they're going to have marriage. That's done. They're betrothed. She doesn't get to choose her status. But she does get to choose whether or not she can love him. And what he does in the book of the Song of Solomon is he says, look, nothing's going to happen until you love me. I'm not going to abuse my power. I'm not going to enforce my rights as a husband unless you love me. And so in the book of the, in, in the Song of Solomon, you have this image of he's ready, she's not. And so he gives her time and he gives her space. And what you see in the beautiful book that makes lots of Puritans nervous, what you see is the image is in the second half of the book she is searching for him because she's fallen in love. He waited. She's searching for him because she's fallen in love. And she's searching the whole city and she's asking the guards, where is my beloved? Where is my beloved? Where is my beloved? I want you to see God is not, yes, he is your creator, like it or not. He is your source of life, like it or not. He is the one to whom all things will eventually settle. The buck stops there, like it or not. But the opportunity he's offering you and the lesson learned of love is not he's going to force himself upon you. The lesson learned in love is his presence is near. His presence woos you. His presence knocks at the door. And when you're ready, when you're ready, You open your heart to him. And what you have then is not a dutiful marriage of obligation. What you have then is not you owe me and I owe you. Not quid pro quo. What you have then is not friends who are just walking the road together, bored. Throwing their heart away and not understanding why it breaks. What you have them is not family duty in the sense of, well, I gotta, I owe it. Not in the sense of the powerful and the weak. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you my self, but it's only because I have no power. That's not what God's looking for. 
God steps back and he waits. And when you're ready, you give your heart to him. So I want to say this to you. Some of you have never thought of God in this way. Your whole life, you've thought of God as judge. You've thought of God as father. You've never thought about the fact that he would like to walk with you and have a relationship with you. And so right now, your brain is a little bit blown, not not because I'm particularly profound, but just because you've never looked at it this way. And you've never seen the divine invitation in your life. And there you are thinking, man, is it possible I choose him? Is it possible? I say, look, of every philosophical idea I've ever heard, nothing compares to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love him. Is it possible that you say, look, he's not Santa Claus on high that I go and ask for this and desire that and proclaim this. No, I choose him. There's no idea more beautiful in all the story of humankind, in all the story of philosophy. There's no idea more beautiful in all the histories and annals of us than a God who breaks himself to fix a broken world. That's as beautiful as it gets. And so I'd like you to consider this. Incline your heart toward the gentle knock. Open your spirit to the gentle wooing. God loves you. And what he wants from you is not duty. He wants a relationship. What he wants from you is not law. He wants a relationship. Let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, we are praying for every one of our viewers, for every one of our friends, church members, wherever they are in the, in the metro area, wherever they are in the world, really. Lord Jesus, let us know you not just in the manner of the unequal obligated party but help us to see the love story that's at the heart of the gospel and help each one of us individually to to perhaps maybe even redefine maybe even rediscover our commitment to you in the terms of I choose you I choose you I'm not just trying to be saved I can't affect that. That's your gift. I just turn to you and receive what you have done. Celebrate who you are, adopted in your family, filled with your presence. But Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want your values to be my values. I want your heart to beat in me. Let it begin in us, I pray, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.